You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is the third of six sessions of the course on the natural law. Uh, my name is Rice. I'm a professor of law at Notre Dame Law School. And uh, we will begin as we do in every class with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last time, we talked about the uh, natural law, the sense of what you could know about it, uh, what the basic inclinations from human nature were, uh, we talked about what you could know about God, that you could know from reason, the existence of God, you can know from reason that the human person is spiritual, you can know from reason that because he's spiritual he's immortal. And we talked about what is good. The first principle of the natural law is to seek the good and avoid evil, and we, and we discussed basic inclinations of human nature which we know to be good which are to seek the good, to preserve self, to preserve the species, to live in community, and to know and to choose. And then we discuss the way we reason by deduction from those basic inclinations. It is good, for example, to live in community. It is therefore not good to steal, because what kind of a community would it be if theft were the norm? And so on and so forth. And we examined the problem where you have sincere differences of opinion on conclusions from the natural law, bearing in mind that while we can say that some things are objectively wrong, and contrary to nature, which is knowable to reason, that really one's subjective culpability for doing something that is wrong depends on whether one knows it's wrong and wills to do it, and that is really not ours to judge. So we talk about the girl who's contemplating abortion. We can say that that is something that is objectively wrong. But whether she, if she does it, is subjectively culpable depends on whether she knows it's wrong and wills to do it. And that's for God and the confessor to judge and not for us. But the question that we have to deal with is a question of whose natural law are we talking about? We're going to talk about natural law, and we're going to be talking about the legal issue of whether there is a standard of right and wrong higher than the state. Is there any, anybody up there? Is there anything up there? Or, under legal positivism, is the law enacted by the state valid no matter what it does? Suppose they reenacted Slavery. Suppose they repealed, that in this country we repealed the 13th Amendment and reinstituted slavery. Would that be a valid law? If you're a legal positivist, you say yes. It would be valid because it's validly enacted. And as long as the state says so, that's a valid law. If you are a natural law guy, you'd say no. There's a standard of right and wrong higher than the state. Now, in 1798, in a case called Calder against Bull, 
The Supreme Court of the United States dealt with ex post facto laws. And they had a law which was enacted by a state which retroactively changed the civil law, not the criminal law. And the Supreme Court said the Constitution forbids ex post facto laws. The Supreme Court said that ex post facto laws are only laws relating to criminal penalties or procedures. And so that this state law was not an ex post facto law for that reason. And Justice Chase in the Supreme Court, this was what the lawyers call a dictum. This was something that was not necessary to decide the case. But he said, if the state enacted a criminal law ex post facto, that is making something a crime which was not a crime when it was committed, he said, even if the Constitution didn't forbid it, this would be contrary to the natural law. Chase said the natural law would make that law void. And Justice Iredell on the Supreme Court wrote an opinion in that case, and he said, no natural law. What do you mean? Well, he said, natural law, he said, can't be used as a basis for decisions of, of law. He said, why? Because, and I quote, the best and the purest minds have differed as to its meaning. And that's the question. Whose natural law? Right? Whose natural law? Say, hey, I'm a natural law guy. Yeah, whose natural law are you applying? Yours? God's? Well, suppose we don't believe in God. And that's the question that has bedeviled this subject. And the only uh, coherent response to it is found in the Catholic tradition, really, which I'll explain in a minute. Later on, we're going to get into further questions as to the content of the natural law. Is it the same for everybody? What is the common good? A law is a rule of reason enacted by one who has care of the community for the common good and promulgated. What is the common good? We're going to get into that during the next session. We're going to get into, in detail, the question of the unjust law. What is your obligation toward the unjust law? And to what extent may you cooperate with an unjust law, and so on. These are all really fascinating questions, but before we get into them, there is a more basic thing that we have to deal with, uh, which is important for the natural law, and that is, how do you make up your mind? Remember I told you that, gave you that case, A is married to B, who's a bum, all right? And they're, they're married, all right? And B is abusing her, beating her, wasting the money, and all the rest of this. Along comes C, who's Mr. Wonderful. The question is, can A marry C? Now remember in the basic inclinations, which St. Thomas says, we know are good. First one is to seek the good, then to preserve yourself then to preserve the species, then to live in community. We know it is good to live in community because we are social. Then to know and to choose. We know these things are good. But when we talk about it being good to preserve the species, it is good to unite sexually, to have children and so on. What about divorce? Or what about abortion? The girl contemplating an abortion. One thing you can be sure of is that it can't be both right and wrong. How do, you, how do you decide? 
And important here, very important here, is the question of conscience. And all of this is important in putting natural law in context, because natural law, the law that's built into our nature, the rule of reason, is available to reason. We can reason to it. But what is our conscience? You say, well, follow your conscience. Do what your conscience says. Is your conscience just a, a decision that, that you make whatever you decide is okay? If you don't think there's an objective right or wrong, that's all it becomes. It becomes your decision, whatever you decide. What St. Thomas tells us in discussing the natural law, and what John Paul II tells us, is that conscience is a judgment made by your mind, by your, your reason, as to the rightness or wrongness of an act. And as with any judgment, you have a duty, first of all, to form your conscience, to form your judgment. If you were, if you were going out to buy a car, who would you ask about it? You'd ask somebody who knew something about cars. You wouldn't come home pulling an old Stutz Bearcat without a motor, pulling it on a rope. And your wife says, Why'd you, where'd you get that thing? You say, well, the guy at the checkout counter at Kmart told me it was good. No, what, what did you do there? You formed your judgment wrong. Your first duty with respect to your conscience is to form it. Then you follow it if clear. If your conscience tells you that you must do something and you're not in doubt, you follow your conscience. Sure. But you may be culpable for forming your conscience wrongly. You hear a lot of people who will tell you, in conscience I disagree with the church on contraception. If your conscience tells you that you must, that you must practice contraception, you have a moral obligation to practice contraception, and the church tells you that you may never practice contraception, then your conscience does collide with the teaching of the church. But you may be culpable for forming your conscience incorrectly. And it's very difficult to see how your conscience would be clear if it were contrary to a such a serious teaching of the church. Moreover, if all that your conscience told you was that it was permissible but not mandatory for you to practice contraception, then you can follow the teaching of the church without violating your conscience. In any event, why? Because your conscience doesn't tell you that you must. And these are things that are for resolution in the individual picture with the confessor and so on, but the important thing is a conscience is a judgment, and you're obliged to form it. Yes, of course you follow it if it's clear, but we often overlook the third thing, which is never act on a doubtful conscience. In the sense that if your conscience is doubtful, you're not, you're not sure about something, your obligation is to resolve the doubt and take the safer course. The old Latin phrase was tutsior pars, take the safer course. For example, I see this, this marker lying there on the desk. I say, should I take it or shouldn't I? It's not mine. I say, I should take it because it will teach somebody a lesson. I know it's not mine, I should take it. On the other hand, it isn't mine. What right do I have to take it? And I'm in doubt. And the one thing I know 
is that if I don't take it, I'm not doing anything wrong. If I do choose to take it, I'm choosing to do what, for all I know, is wrong. And that's why when you see the question of conscience, the first thing to keep in mind is that it is a judgment. It's not, it may be influenced by emotion. It's not simply an emotion. It's not simply a decision. It's a judgment that you have to make in the context of objective morality. You have to form it. Uh, yes, if it's clear, you follow. Of course, you follow your judgment as to what should be done. You may be culpable for forming it incorrectly. And if you're in doubt, take the safer course. And we have the great advantage of the teaching of the church, which offers us the guidance on this, the, the interpretation of the natural law. And that's what, what we want to get into here in this particular uh, class. Remember I talked about Hans Kelsen in the, first, in the first class? Hans Kelsen is the leading legal positivist of the 20th century. And Kelsen is the guy who said that nobody can know objective morality. He said justice is an irrational ideal. Kelsen also said something else. He also said that there is no natural law doctrine of any importance without an essentially religious character. That's interesting. See, what he said, he didn't say this, but this is what, he was, what the thrust is. He said you can't really talk natural law without talking a lawgiver. Now in the next class, we're going to get into details of the natural law, further details. Does everybody know it? Does it change? How does it relate to the common good? Should it be enforced? And so on and so forth. But for the moment, let's deal with that basic question. And that's the answer to the problem of A up there. That's the answer to the girl who is contemplating the abortion. She can know from reason whether it's right or wrong to perform that abortion. But the lawgiver of the natural law has given us, in the Ten Commandments, and in the Catholic tradition, in the teaching of the church, he's given us the answers. And remember that St. Thomas, in the uh, very first question in the entire Summa, St. Thomas, the great exponent of reason, St. Thomas said in the very first question in the entire Summa, he said that, yes, the question, is philosophy enough? And he said, no. Philosophy is not enough. You need revelation. Why? Because due to original sin, we are weakened and we need revelation. So now we, we really get the questions arising. What really is the conflict today? There are really only two games in town. You have on the one hand, you have the enlightenment view of the human person and of culture, which is based on secularism, relativism, and individualism. And over here, you have John Paul II, who is not simply teaching natural law. John Paul II is not a teacher of natural law. But rather, what John Paul II has done has been to incorporate natural law into the teaching of Christ. And over the next three classes after this, we're going to talk about what that natural law looks like when it is incorporated by John Paul into that teaching of Christ and how it relates to secularism, relativism, and individualism. We're going to talk about what St. Thomas 
meant in particular about how the natural law would operate. Does everybody know it? Is it the same? And so forth and so on. But the first question you've got to ask here, I, I, now I make this, this, this big statement, I say, look, the, uh, there are only two games in town, the Enlightenment view, the prevailing view, and John Paul II over here. So the first question that, that you ought to ask is, hey, why should I pay any attention to him? Who's he? And remember St. Thomas. In the very first question of the Summa, the very first question, numero uno, right? Right at the beginning. St. Thomas said philosophy is not enough, that you need revelation. We've got to ask some questions here. Got to, this is where it really gets kind of interesting when you, if you, you deal with this in this context. Who is this guy? Who is John Paul II? Is he, uh, well, well he's, either, he's either a Polish tourist living in Rome, or he is what he says he is. I suppose he is the vicar of Christ. So what? The interesting aspect of this is that the natural law, which is the standard higher than the state, higher than the human law. Remember St. Thomas divided the law into the eternal law, the divine law, which is Revelation, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, the natural law and the human law. And the natural law, the standard of right and wrong, higher than the state, the natural law has a lawgiver. And the question here is, who is that lawgiver? And as John Paul has been pointing out, the central question is, what about Christ? And I, I do this in the jurisprudence course in law school. I, I'll tell you why. We, we get into these foundational things, questions of not only what you can know, uh, can you know anything, uh, can you know you're spiritual, can you know you're immortal, and so on. And we get into the questions of Christ. Why? Because uh, you've got to ask who's the lawgiver. And you've got to ask who's Christ. Because it makes a difference if he's the lawgiver. And the reason we get into it is because most of these kids, probably most of them come out of Catholic colleges, are relatively clueless on these things. And it's fascinating stuff. They see, then they, they find it of interest because it is interesting material. Because we are asking ourselves here from a legal point of view, what is and how do we determine that standard of right and wrong, which is higher than the state, called the natural law. And we have to ask ourselves from reason, what we can know about ourselves and uh, what we can know about God. And we also ask, have to ask from revelation, what we can know about ourselves and what we can know about God. Now, very quickly, all of this, I'm gonna compress <laughs> in a very few minutes, the entire history of the world, all right? Who is God? This is revelation we're talking about. You can't reason to this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons of the Blessed Trinity. They're persons. What is a person? Boethius, the uh, definition uh, 
of person as a person is an individual of rational nature, but the persons of the Trinity are more. St. Thomas says the persons of the Trinity are relations among themselves. You can't think of the Father except in relation to the Son. Does God have a social life? Yes, he has a social life. God created. He created three levels of creation. He created material creation, the rocks and the trees. He created angels who are persons. And he created men of both sexes. All right? And angels and men were created, why? To share eternal happiness with God in heaven. God created angels. The first sin was the, the angels who had free will, who, who chose, they said, non-serviam, I will not serve. That's the beginning of hell. And why did God create man? God created man out of love. God created man so that man would have the ability to choose to spend eternity sharing in the life of the Trinity. Think about that. God created man with three levels of gifts, with his natural gifts, that is, with his intellect, his will, his body, his soul, with preternatural gifts, that is, you might call accented natural gifts, that is, he would not get sick. He did not have to study and so forth. And most important, God created man with the supernatural gift, which is what? It's the, the gift of being able to choose to share in the life of the Trinity. Let me give you an example. If you had a dog, suppose you got a dog. I, I want to know what his name is. Is it Bismarck, right? And you go into, into the house one day, and you look over a couch and, and, and his, his newspaper and a cigar smoke and a glass of beer with a little paw around it. What's happening here? Bismarck is reading the newspaper and smoking a cigar. You walk in the room, he says, hey, what's for dinner? What's happening? Bismarck is acting above his nature. That's all supernatural is. Above nature. Now, Suppose instead of that happening the way I just described it, suppose you come into the, into the house and Bismarck is his usual self. You looked at him and he said, hey, hey Bismarck, I got, a, I got a newsflash for you. I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to raise you above your nature so that you can participate in the social life of our family. And you looked at him, you snapped your fingers. And Bismarck rubbed his eyes and he Got up, he said, hey, what's for dinner? I went to the refrigerator, opened it up, got a beer. Got the TV news. Said, hey, what's on? Went over, turned on the set. What happened? You gave him a supernatural gift, which he could never have done on his own. No matter how he tried, he could never raise himself above his nature. All that man had to do was choose to love God. God created man out of love. But you can't love unless you have the capacity not to love. You bring a girl in a room and say, hey, here's my fiance. She loves me and she's bound in chains, she's gagged and she's tied up. You say, hey, wait a minute, untie her and see if she loves you. In this context, love is an act of the will. And man rejected God's love and lost the supernatural gift and lost the preternatural gifts. All that man was left with was his natural gifts. Just like Bismarck sitting there, there's no way he can raise himself to the level of participating in the social life of your family. 
Adam was the first man. And there were two first parents. And their choice redounded to our disadvantage. Not unjust, because we had no right to those gifts. It would be the same as if your great-great-great-great-grandfather back in the 1700s had been told by his father, if you don't drink until you're 21, I'll give you a million dollars. If he had given your great ancestor a million dollars at that time, you'd be a multi-millionaire today. Well, the night before his 21st birthday, the, that character fell off the wagon and took a drink. It's not unjust that you don't have that money today because you're not entitled to it. That's what happened here. We have no right to that. And what happened was that God gave man a second chance. But God is all just, and reparation had to be made for this sin. The justice of God requires reparation. If you go out and you throw a rock through a neighbor's window, it's not enough just to say you're sorry, you've got to pay for the window. But who can make reparation for a sin committed by man, but somebody acting for man? Man himself. And who's got the horsepower to make reparation for an offense against God? God is infinite, without limit. And you measure an offense by the dignity of the person offended. That's why you have in the law special crimes relating to protected persons, ambassadors, and so on. It's a, uh, why was this such a terrible thing when the Pope was shot? Or when President Reagan was shot? Because it's a, a greater offense because of the dignity of the person or President Kennedy, the dignity of the person who was the victim. And who's got the horsepower to make reparation to an infinite offended person, except somebody of infinite horsepower? And that's the basis for the incarnation. The second person of the Blessed Trinity became man so that he could make reparation for man. And so that as God he would have the ability to make infinite reparation to God. That's the, what we call the incarnation, central fact in history. The incarnation to make redemption, to, re, to buy us back. And we could get into a lot of detail on this, but this is, this is important. Because we're going to see that the question of the natural law raises this question that Judge Iridell posed in Calder against Bull. That's the question, whose natural law? And, I, and the response is God's natural law. And the question, who tells us what it means? Who is the authoritative interpreter? And the answer is that God himself has given us an authoritative interpreter through the church, which is the body of Christ. You say, well, who's Christ? All right, well, who is Christ? That's a very common thing to say about Christ. Well, I don't think he's God, but I think he's a, he's a fine man and a great teacher, but he's not God. That, that makes no sense at all. Christ claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. Before Abraham came to be, I am, he said. And I am was the term meaning God. Christ claimed to be God on so many occasions. Now, if he's not God, he claimed to be God, and he knew he wasn't God. What is he? He's a liar. If he claimed to be God, and thought he was God, but wasn't. He wasn't really God, but he thought he was. What is he? He's nuts, right? 
He's either God or he's a liar or he's nuts. Nobody get around. Now, we could go into the details on this. You have to look at it. You look at Christ. You have to make a decision. Through the fulfillment of the prophecies, through the miracles, Christ proved his divinity, most importantly, the resurrection. An evangelical lawyer named Anderson in the Christian Lawyer magazine a number of years ago wrote a, an analysis of the resurrection, a lawyer's analysis of the resurrection. It was very, very good. And it uh, showed that it just in terms of historical event, it's an event that transcends history, right? It's, but it actually happened. It was not a resuscitation. Christ didn't revive and, and wake up. He, he rose from the dead. How do you know? Well, suppose you were to, to deal with the resurrection as a law case. And suppose you were to address a jury. What questions would you have to ask? You have to ask, well, wait a minute, did he die? Yes, the answer is yes, he died. Nobody ever survived crucifixion. They put the lance on his side. They didn't break his legs because he was already dead. Was he buried? Of course he was buried. But the real question is, was the tomb empty on Sunday morning? No, the answer to that is yes. How do you know? Because if the tomb had not been empty, Christianity would have lasted about 45 minutes. Because if the body were still in the tomb, they would have had a parade. They would have taken the body out of the tomb, shown everybody the body is still there. So the tomb is empty, yes, all right? Corpus delicti, where's the body? Now there are two possibilities here. One is that he rose, all right? The other is it was taken. But who could have taken it? Who could have taken the body? Jewish leaders and the Romans wouldn't take it. It's contrary to their interest. There's no indication at all of some kind of a freelance grave robber just roaming around stealing bodies. The real question is, did the apostles take it? And you got two questions that come up there. How? Did they overcome the guard? The tomb was a quarter of a mile from Fortress Antonio. It was a quarter of a mile. How could they do that unless they had rubber knives? I mean, how, how could they do it? How could they overcome that guard? Force? No. Did they bribe them? How much money would the guards take to hand over that body which would subject themselves, perhaps, to capital punishment? Well, the more important thing is the transformation of the apostles. Cardinal Newman said that if Christ had not risen from the dead, the growth of the church would have been a greater miracle, even, than that. What was it that turned these guys, these losers of the community, what was it that turned them into tigers? Every single one of them was either martyred or submitted himself to the possibility of martyrdom. Why? Well, in legal terms, the fact that somebody dies for a belief does not prove that that belief is true. But it is evidence that he believes it's true, that he really believes it. And you have to ask the question, is it possible that they could have been deceived as to what they claimed about Christ? This is fascinating stuff. Conrad Adenauer, who was the leader of the West German Republic after World War II, when he retired, said, I want to spend the rest of my life studying the resurrection. Fascinating. For example, when Christ appeared to the apostles after the resurrection in the upper room, what did he do? They were in a state of consternation, and he, and he said, have you got anything to eat? And they handed him food. And what did he do? He ate part of it. He ate part of it. And then he handed it back to them. Now, could they have been deceived? 
You can't hallucinate tooth marks out of a quarter pounder. And were the appearances of Christ after the resurrection hallucinations? How do you explain the empty tomb? That's fascinating. But the important thing for the natural law is that Christ, who is God, speaks to us through the church. And the church is the body of Christ. And the church has three functions. To teach, to rule, and that doesn't mean that they rule Mishawaka or New York. It means that they set up the rules for the sacraments and so forth. And to sanctify. The teaching authority of the church, the teaching function of the church is possessed by the pope and the bishops in union with the pope. And this is in the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium, particularly number 25. The teaching authority of the church is possessed by the pope and the bishops in union with the pope. And that teaching authority extends to the entire moral law. It extends to the natural law. John Paul, over there in Rome, is the authoritative interpreter of the natural law because he is the vicar of Christ. And he is given that teaching authority by Christ. Please don't misunderstand. That does not mean that the natural law is not available to reason. It is. You can reason to these things. But as St. Thomas says, as Aquinas says, you need revelation because of our weakness from original sin. You need revelation even in those things to which we could reason by ourselves. And that's why it's so important to answer Justice Iredell's question and say, hey, look, there is an authoritative interpreter for the natural law. I say, well, suppose you're not Catholic. Well, that's our problem. That doesn't change the fact of the reality of what it is. And it doesn't change the fact that the natural law is accessible to reason. And when John Paul went to the United Nations, he discussed human rights and natural law in those terms. Because we can't appeal to people on a reasoned basis with respect to the natural law. Now, in the teaching of the church, let's make something very clear. The church teaches on two levels. The church teaches on the infallible level. All that means is that where Christ, who is, who is God, has willed to preserve the church from error because he has said that I am with you to the consummation of the world, the church can teach infallibly. The pope and the bishops in union with the pope, either through an ex cathedra pronouncement, that is, from the chair. And you haven't had that in the moral area. The last one was on the Assumption in 1950. That doesn't mean Mary was assumed into heaven in 1950. It means that that's when the doctrine was proclaimed. The one previous to that was 1854, the Immaculate Conception. But an infallible teaching can also be found in a universal teaching of the entire church, of all the bishops in union with the Pope. It can be argued that the teaching on contraception, the teaching on abortion is that kind. But it's not important in this area. It's not really important in this area. The church also teaches through the ordinary magisterium. And these are teachings which bind in conscience. A teaching of the ordinary magisterium may incorporate teachings that are infallible by 
universal teaching or whatever. But the important thing in terms of the natural law, in terms of the question of how do you determine this thing and, and informing your conscience, how do you decide, is that the teachings of the ordinary magisterium, as pointed out in Lumen Gentium number 25 in the Second Vatican Council, are entitled to loyal submission of will and of mind informing your conscience. So where does that leave us? What it tells us is that when we begin with the question as we did in this class, begin with the question, whose natural law are we talking about? We have to identify the lawgiver of that natural law. And the lawgiver is God. And we have to answer the question, who is Christ who claimed to be God? And if he's God, and if he has founded a church to teach to us today, and to teach about the moral law, then although that natural law, and we can't lose sight of this, although that natural law is available to reason, we can reason to these conclusions. But because of original sin, we are weakened, and we can make mistakes, and it would take us a long time. We would find, have great difficulty in, in doing this. God has given us a great advantage in giving us the teaching church, in giving us the magisterium. Because he has given us not an arbitrary person who decides according to his own whims what things mean. He has given us an authoritative interpreter of that moral law. And the authoritative interpreter is John Paul. And so when you get into questions, for example, like capital punishment, Timothy McVeigh, what is the criterion? And you look at Evangelium Vitae. When you get into the questions of killing of the innocent and abortion, and you find there that this authoritative interpreter is saying, this is natural law incorporated into the teaching of Christ. This authoritative interpreter is saying that it is never lawful to kill the innocent, ever. And that's where the natural law makes total ultimate sense. But please don't draw the conclusion from that that this is accessible only by faith. It isn't. Far, far from it. As I mentioned in the previous class, there are two things you have to be careful about. Two things you have to be careful to avoid. Rationalism, which is reduction of everything to reason. Saying that if I can't reason to it, it isn't true, it isn't so. And fideism. The idea that it's all a matter of faith and we can't reason to any of it. Quite the contrary. We've gone through the basic collision between the natural law and the prevailing culture. We've gone through the idea of whether you can know anything, what you can know, how you know it, the principle of contradiction and so on, what you can know about God, what you can know about yourself. We've gone through what you can know about human nature. We've gone through the way in which you make deductions from these inclinations of human nature, which are good, where you, you make those deductions, draw those conclusions as to what is good. And now what we've talked about in this class is that we have a great assistance provided to us by God, an authoritative interpreter, that is the Vicar of Christ, to help us in our understanding of the natural law. And what we're going to do next time is continue that further and get into the details of how you actually apply 
natural law in this context. What do you do, for example, if you are Rosa Parks in 1958? The question is whether you should get up and give your seat to the white guy in the bus. Is that an unjust law? Is she bound to disobey it? Does she have a right to disobey it? And we'll get into those kinds of questions next time. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.